The Beatitudes. Why am I talking about the Beatitudes? Well, here's why. Um, Over the next year, I intend to be reflecting in various aspects on this idea of the Benedict Option. Several of you have asked me to reflect on it. And it's something I've been reflecting on for a long time because uh, I'm someone who's read books by Rod Dreher who's proposed this. And uh, in a nutshell, the idea is um, we Christians going into a kind of post-Christian society have to find creative ways at the local level to band together and make local communities where we can support one another uh, and not rely on faraway political power to do it for us, okay? So um, the, uh, we see that in various ways, the government is hostile to Christian morality. So we have this very sad situation in New York and Virginia where we have these laws passed extremely permissive in taking the life of unborn children, right? Uh, So we can't expect that the government is going to have a Christian morality or even be friendly to Christians. Um, I know things have have lightened up a bit in the state of Illinois in the last, say, eight years maybe, but this is something that used to concern Cardinal George a lot, is that there were many uh, in the state government who were hostile toward the Catholic Church. Um, some of it, unfortunately, our, our clerics have brought upon themselves and, and on the rest of us. Uh, we have to deal with uh, bad repute as well. Uh, so what can we do instead of relying on government structures to do this for us or even the clerics, you know, the, the hierarchy of the church? Well, we can help each other. We can, we can work together. And you as oblates have an advantage in that a monastery is, uh, we profess stability so it's very unlikely that we're going to go anywhere, any, any individual monk in our monastery. We're going to be here in this place for the rest of our lives, most likely. So you always know where to find us. That also gives us uh, an investment in the local community, in the community of Bridgeport, in Chicago, in the state of Illinois, Midwest. Uh, that's, that's, we are going to be a place where others can network just by being here. This is how Benedictine monasteries have always worked. Um, so... The difficulty then is, so, so that's great, but what does it mean? What does it mean to have this kind of community? How, what, how do we act? Like, what, what's your responsibility? What's my responsibility to you? Um, and how does this differ from, say, just practicing your faith in some way? So um, in reflecting on all these things, I wanted to talk about the Beatitudes um, because uh, they can help correct some misinterpretations we might have of what I'm talking about. First possible misinterpretation. Uh, I like to talk a lot about virtue and vice. This is uh, in monastic spirituality. We usually see a kind of twofold progression in holiness. The first one is the active life where we uproot vices and we plant virtues. The second part is the contemplative life where we come to an understanding of who God is and what God's intentions are. And we become unified with God's outlook, with God's own nature. Um, and uh, the, the, the way this can be misinterpreted is if we, if we forget what the goal is and we just see these as obligations, we can misinterpret what virtue is. Virtue is not a series of obligations. Uh, for example, the, 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 the example I always use is in music. Um, when you're a kid and your parents make you take piano lessons, you have an obligation to sit down and play for a half hour every day. Um, this will advance you some ways in learning how to play the piano, but if you're ever gonna become really good at it, you'll have to love it. You'll have to want to play the piano. And then the playing scales and arpeggios and exercises is no longer an obligation. You have to do it, but you do it because you want to be able to play beautiful music. And if you don't, exercise your fingers and your ear and your sense of timing and so on, you're, you, you won't play well and it won't be any fun. <laughs> it won't be fun for you and it'll be even less fun for people listening to you if you don't know how to play the piano. So, uh, so doing scales, even though it's still kind of onerous, I don't particularly enjoy it myself. I, I practice every day about 20 minutes. Um, and lately I've been doing scales because I just wasn't satisfied with how I was playing. You know, I felt sort of clunky and thuddy and I wasn't playing good phrases and so on. So I'd, I do some rudiments, you know, some fundamentals and uh, now I'm playing better, so that's good. 
Um, but the goal is to play the piano well. Okay, so the goal of Christian life is, believe it or not, it's our happiness. Okay, you remember the old Baltimore Catechism, uh, Why Did God Create Me? Uh, you know, to, to be happy with him forever, right? So to love him, to serve him in this life and the next, to be happy with him forever. Uh, and it's okay to want that. It's okay to want to be happy. The problem with a morality of obligation is it often robs us of a certain happiness. Um, I, I, I don't mind putting this on, on record, and eventually I'll, I'll come up with a, a more sort of structured critique of, of the Benedict option as I understand it. I'm still working through the book and taking notes right now. I don't want to write stuff until I've had, to, I've had a chance to read the whole thing. But here's one thing that I would say that's, that can be misinterpreted again about it, um, is that uh, it's something that is being proposed out of fear. And so the goal is to avoid suffering, which is not a bad goal exactly. We shouldn't like seek out suffering for no purpose. But the goal is, is happiness. The goal is, is joy in the Holy Spirit, right? So the kingdom of God is not eating or drinking. It's peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So if we're, if we're undertaking this, uh, this way of life because we're afraid, that's not a bad place to start, okay? So fear is, not a, is the beginning of wisdom, fear of God. Sometimes we need to be scared in order to get the energy to convert, right? To change the way we live. That's okay, but we can't stay there. And certainly we can't continue to set up an us versus them thing where uh, we've got to shield ourselves from the bad people. We have, because we have to evangelize them somehow. We have to be thinking about that at some level. Because God wants all to be saved, even our enemies. We have to love our enemies. So, um, and, I, and one of the difficult, I think the, one of the hurdles to this Benedict option is that it's continually couched in language of, Look at what those bad people are doing. We've got to stop them and we've got to stay, save ourselves from them and not expose ourselves to them. And again, there's, some, there's a bit of truth to that, it's not, but it's not the whole thing. Uh, whoever's in charge, if they're our friends or not, we still ought to want to seek joy and happiness with God because that, there's nothing better than that. So why wouldn't we? And Jesus starts his Sermon on the Mount. He begins his public ministry by telling us how to be happy. <laughs> if you want to be blessed, you'll do these things. This is what your life will look like, okay? And he has to teach us these things because they're not the things we'd immediately think of. We wouldn't think of happiness, first of all, in being connected to mourning, <laughs> right? So we need some instruction. We need our Lord to teach us this. But it's important to recognize at the outset, it's okay to want to be happy. It's, in fact, anything we do, anything we try to do, we're searching for happiness. This is something Aristotle and Aquinas both say. So even when people make mistakes and sin gravely, they're pursuing what they think is good, what they think will make them happy. They just are making mistakes. Uh, or they, their minds have been clouded by sin, and so they choose things that actually make everybody unhappy, okay? So, uh, but sometimes in our world today, there's this uh, feeling like if you're, if you're trying to be happy, then you're being selfish. So this, there, this is a kind of meme that goes around about contemplatives. Well, the contemplative life, that's great if you're called to it or whatever, but we gotta get out there and do stuff. There are so many problems in the world. And, and sort of the implication is those guys who hide behind the walls are being selfish. Um, this is false. It's, it's, against the, it's against the church's tradition. Why is that? Well, I mean, among other things, let's say, you know, why, why is it not um, selfish to choose happiness for oneself? Well, let's say, um, how are you going to help others to be happy if you're upset all the time, <laughs> how, how are you going to share what you don't have? So, so for us to work with the Holy Spirit and to be, be liberated uh, from the vices, among which are anger and sadness, then we will be able to help others, right? So think about our Lord talking about, uh, you know, looking at the speck in our brother's eye before we take the beam out of our own. This is a, an exhortation to learn to see clearly 
And we can't see clearly when we're, when we're upset or when we're afraid. This, uh, these uh, sort of emotional re reactions to things uh, make it very difficult. Again, that's, that's not to say it's not very human to be afraid of certain things, right? It's just to say that, again, what we want to remember is that, that God has freed us from that necessary reaction, or that human reaction, so we can live a, a supernatural life in the spirit. And we can even be like the martyrs who uh, weren't afraid to be tortured or whatever, right? Uh, so, virtue then, when I talk about virtue, it's at the service of this goal. The, the way you get to be blessed is through a life of virtue and, and a renunciation of vice. My proof of this, when I, I will never tire of talking about this, is, is this. What's the first thing that Rome looks for when someone is proposed as a candidate for canonization? When they investigate the life of a potential saint, what do they look for first? The dirt. They look for the devil's advocate. That's true. Well, yeah. Well, they look for heroic virtue. Heroic virtue. <laughs> there it is. Yeah. A, you can't become a saint unless you have heroic virtue. So, so there's no way to holiness and blessedness without virtue. So that's why I talk about virtue so much, because, because I want you to be happy. <laughs> and, and vice makes us unhappy, right? So thank you. Um, we, we had a, an interesting... Um, uh, so again, we should see that everyone's trying to get happiness. It's just we're, we usually do it in the wrong way, and that's why we need our Lord to begin teaching us at the beginning of his Sermon on the Mount how to do this. Okay, let me jump ahead here uh, to the next part of my talk today. So, as I say, our Lord begins the Sermon on the Mount with blessedness. We should note that the Sermon on the Mount is all about the kingdom of God, what it's like, how to recognize it, right? So uh, our goal is to get to the kingdom and that's where we will experience our blessedness. So keep in mind again that, that when we, to achieve this happiness, it has to be something communal, even if we're first of all concerned with our own happiness, because I mean, let's face it, we're the only persons whose lives we can control. Like each of us, we can't help, we, we can't force other people to be happy, uh, but we can work on ourselves, right? We, if, if, and if we fail at happiness, we have no one to blame but ourselves. You know, we, we can't, uh, just like we can't blame other people for not being happy, um, we can't blame ourselves if other people are unhappy. Um, we, we, we might look at ourselves like if we're, if we're hurting people, but ultimately each of us has to take responsibility and answer to God at the judgment for ourselves. Um, but the, the mystery of this is that when, as we're uh, growing in virtue, as we're growing in, in these qualities, it will necessarily involve, as we'll see in the Beatitudes, uh, a concern for justice, righteousness, a concern for peace with others, right? Uh, a concern for mercy. So our relationship with others is going to be one uh, that connects very much with this idea of Beatitude. Uh, okay. Let me give you an overview of what the Beatitudes are, and then I'm going to do a little commentary on each of the, the traditional seven. There are eight of them, but the eighth has its own uh, different kind of tone to it. So uh, our Lord did not invent the Beatitude form. It, it shows up in the Old Testament several places, but always in what we call wisdom literature. So if you want to be wise, one of the things you want to find out is, you know, how do, how do I become happy? Right? What's, what's, what do the wise say about this? They'll say things you know, like, um, you know, blessed are those who fear the Lord and walk in his ways. Blessed are those who don't walk in the ways of sinners. Uh, you know, blessed are those who don't follow their own opinion. <laughs> you, know, the, you get these sorts of things in Proverbs, in Job, and in the Psalms. So our Lord takes up this form and he fulfills it as he does all of the sayings of the Old Testament. He, he fulfills it and shows the inner meaning of all of these, of these other Beatitudes. Um, are the Beatitudes to be enjoyed only in the next life? Thomas Aquinas has a chapter in his Summa on the Beatitudes, and he asks this question at the beginning. And his answer is yes and no. So the fullness of Beatitude we won't experience until the next life. 
But we can already experience uh, blessedness in two ways in this life. One is through hope. So by knowing that God intends us to be happy, that he intends our beatitude, uh, this already gives us encouragement and a sense of happiness, a certain lightness, a certain confidence. So we're already by hope for this future goal, participating in it. And this is true. Uh, Anytime we have hope for achieving a goal, we're already participating in it in some way. We're preparing for it. We're, we're, We're giving ourselves energy for getting there. Again, like with the piano, if I have a recital to play, um, already when I'm practicing, I'm already participating in that recital. I'm preparing for it. I'm excited about it. Uh, I'm finding ways to play better and better and better. And then finally the recital comes and hopefully I ace it and everyone uh, goes to the reception and enjoys themselves. Um, The second way though, there's an even deeper way in which we can participate in beatitude in this life. And again, this is the lives of the saints. So the saints actually begin to show us what beatitude looks like by the way they act. And we'll talk about this, at the very end of the beatitudes, we start to see union with God. To to be a child of God means to participate in the divine nature and to uh, be an altar Christus for, for the world. So we see Christ present in the saints in the way they act, the way they comport themselves, in the way they speak, in the, the actions and examples they leave us. And this is why it's really important to get to know the saints. Uh, so, so we will only find this final blessedness in the final consummation of all things, but we already participate in it now. There are, you may know, two different versions of the Beatitudes. So today, both in my homily and in the Oblate talk, you're getting uh, some, some Bible scholar stuff. Um, the Beatitudes, the best known version of them is at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter five in Luke's gospel. But next week, we're going to hear the other version of the Beatitudes, which is in uh, Luke's gospel, in what's called the Sermon on the Plain. And uh, Luke's Beatitudes, because they're a little less familiar, uh, they can be a little bit shocking to people sometimes. uh, Because, uh, as is often the case, Luke's writing is pretty blunt and direct. Let me read you uh, so I don't get it wrong, because I don't have it memorized. Um, This is what Luke has. Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you that hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you that weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you, etc. And then Luke's version also has four balancing woes. Woe to you that are rich, woe to you that are full now, woe to you that laugh now, woe to you when men speak well of you. Um, Bible scholars have their own ways of explaining this. Um, The fathers of the church, Ambrose and Augustine, explained it like this. Luke's Sermon is in the plain. It's at a lower level. Okay. It's about renouncing sensuality and embracing virtue. There are four beatitudes. There are four cardinal virtues. Um, So this is St. Ambrose explanation of the sermon in the plain. This makes some sense. Luke is writing for Gentiles. Matthew's writing for Jews for the most part. Okay. So Matthew's writing for people who already know the Old Testament, know the scriptures uh, have some formation in the ethics of the Jewish people and so on. He's, he's also, it says uh, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he sees people gathering to him. He looks at his disciples. So he's talking to the, the intimates, those who already know stuff, uh, in Matthew's gospel. In Luke's gospel, he's sort of talking to everybody. So people who don't really know uh, much, uh, their right hand from their left hand, if I can put it that way. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is at a higher level, okay? So uh, it's more spiritual. And that's the, the version we're going to work with today. Uh, the seven Beatitudes on the, that come with the Sermon on the Mount correspond to the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so again, to the virtues are human. Uh, just by our human nature, we can achieve a certain amount of virtue. Aristotle knew this, even though he didn't know God. Okay, Um, but the gifts of the Holy Spirit are God's gifts. That's why they're gifts. We can't achieve what they produce in us without God's grace. Okay, 
Uh, so the, the Beatitudes are helping us to identify the gifts of the Holy Spirit and to cooperate with them. So these are uh, teachings for the initiates. They come in three parts. So the first uh, three Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, and blessed are those who mourn, uh, traditionally, again, help us to renounce sensual happiness. So both Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas, when they begin their treatises on the moral life, identify happiness as our goal, and then they identify the sort of typical mistakes people make. So they conflate happiness with pleasure, or we conflate happiness with being able to do what we want, or having a lot of money, or... Uh, having people think well of us, okay? And uh, both Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas say, "Ah, it's understandable why people would make that mistake, but that won't actually make you happy. What will make you happy is virtuous life. So the first three Beatitudes are about learning how to renounce those mistaken ideas about what's going to make us happy. Uh, In Catholic uh, spiritual theology, we would call this the purgative way. So we purge ourselves of false ideas or wrong ideas of some kind. The second two, um, and again, I need to crib these because I, I, when I get in front of everybody, I forget, I blank. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness and being merciful. These uh, are active virtues. So these, are, these uh, point us to happiness in activity like how to be joyful in the things we do. Uh, And this corresponds, I would say, to the illuminative way. So by working with God's grace in action, uh, we come to understand how the world is put together, how God has intended things to work. And uh, wrong ideas about how the world works get set aside so that we can see God in action in the world, okay? So this is preparation for the contemplative life now. And the last two Beatitudes, purity of heart and peacemaking, are the contemplative Beatitudes. These uh, correspond to the unitive way in Catholic spiritual theology. And what this means is now, now that we have gotten rid of vice, We've gotten rid of wrong ideas about what God is doing in the world and who God is. We can enjoy unity with God. We become children of God. So blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be called children of God. So God's own life begins to shine out in us at this level. Okay? Any questions on anything I've said so far before I go into my commentary? Okay. So we begin with, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I had a friend of mine ask me once, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Like, what is, you know, does that mean being, uh, you know, boring? Or, or what, what uh, does it mean not liking yourself? Um, actually, it's very interesting. Uh, I hadn't thought of this until I was preparing this, but... Uh, over the last few years, I've been doing a lot of study of uh, moral philosophy and moral theology because um, the men coming into our, our community, you know, coming out of the culture that we're in, have many mistaken ideas, as did I. Uh, and then uh, reading Alasdair MacIntyre was a spur to me as well. And as many of you know, this Benedict option I was talking about at the beginning, the mention of Benedict doesn't go directly to St. Benedict. It goes to Alasdair MacIntyre, this philosopher, uh, because he said uh, uh, that we're waiting for another St. Benedict uh, to come because uh, our, our political life, it doesn't, it's not working. <laughs> and uh, he says that, MacIntyre now says that St. Benedict and the monks in the West withdrew from trying to help out the empire survive and just started local communities all over the place. And eventually Europe, as we know it, grew up out of that. Um, so, uh, so I've been doing a lot of studying, trying to understand how to help, uh, the young guys in the community to make this conversion to traditional Catholic understanding of what the moral life is. 
Um, and uh, you can't really do moral theology in the West, at least. I don't know to what extent um, moral theologians in the Christian East would deal with Aristotle. Uh, but Aristotle's uh, Nicomachean Ethics is extremely influential, especially beginning in the 13th century in the West. And this is what's interesting. Um, the, the sort of the highest model of the good life for Aristotle, which we Christians have to correct, by the way, I'm not, I'm not going to say this to you uncritically, is the great-souled man. Okay? And what does he mean by this? Well, first of all, it's a man. Okay, we have to understand that. Aristotle was not an enlightened person. He didn't think that women and slaves and barbarians were capable of happiness. Um, and uh, so a lot of uh, McIntyre's work has been to try to show that we can rescue Aristotle's method from Aristotle's cultural blindness. <laughs> um, I, I personally think he does it, um, but most people don't read McIntyre's work beyond his, his famous After Virtue book. Uh, whereas I've tried to read everything he's written. Um, so, the great-souled man is not dependent on anyone. Uh, he doesn't even like to acknowledge if anyone does something nice for him, because that would suggest that he in some way is not great-souled. So it's interesting, isn't it? Our Lord says exactly the opposite thing at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, undoubtedly... Uh, it's, it's very unlikely that St. Matthew would have known Aristotle. <laughs> uh, so this would, the opposite of the great-souled man in this case would be the person who acknowledges dependence on others. And what's really interesting to me about that is that uh, probably the second most influential book that Alistair McIntyre has written is called Dependent Rational Animals. And this is his attempt as I said, to rescue Aristotle's method from Aristotle's cultural blindness. Uh, in it, it's very interesting, he depends very heavily on women philosophers who point out that in Western philosophy, most of the philosophy has been done by healthy men. <laughs> and so it reflects the biases of healthy men. We don't get to hear from the sick. We don't get to hear from children or the elderly or from women. <laughs> and so... Uh, to fix this, we, we need to listen to each other more. And what we recognize is that all along, starting with Aristotle and probably to some extent Plato before him, uh, the assumption is that it's happy to be independent. <laughs> but in fact, it's an illusion that we're independent. None of us are independent. There is no such thing as the great-souled man. He, it's an, he's an illusion to himself. Uh, you know, this is not to criticize Aristotle overly much. He, again... He didn't have the light of the gospel. He didn't even have the light of the Torah, right? So uh, he did the best he could. But his influence and just, I think, you know, the fact that the, the gospel has had to clear away lots of rubble uh, from cultural uh, biases um, means that this is quite a shocking thing, you know? And in, in McIntyre's book, Dependent Rational Animals, the second half of the book is devoted to enumerating what he calls the virtues of acknowledged dependence. So it's a virtue to acknowledge that I depend on other people. That's actually a virtue. That doesn't sound like a virtue because it sounds like a limitation to depend on other people. Okay, and so this is an uphill battle that McIntyre has to fight. And I'm not going to go into it now. I just want to make you aware that this is being talked about right now. Uh, a lot of good work is being done at Notre Dame right now at this. I've seen they've had a number of conferences on this book uh, and uh, some really, really excellent contributions by female scholars to this question because women tend to be, more, to be better placed in describing this. For example, um, women understand better than men, typically speaking, uh, the challenges of working with children. Okay? Children are dependent. And they don't really have much choice but to acknowledge it. They can't live on their own, right? And it takes children a long time, as McIntyre points out. We're dependent for a lot of our lives, a lot more than we realize, you know? Really dependent. Like when we're kids, when we're sick, when we're elderly, you know, we really need other people to help us out. And so if we don't acknowledge this, we're, again, we're an illusion to ourselves. So now let's get back to the gospel. Jesus says... Blessed are you if you're poor in spirit, 
If you, if you acknowledge that you can't do it by yourself, if you acknowledge that you're dependent on other people, if you, if you don't aim to be independent, <laughs> that doesn't mean not thinking for yourself or, or something like that, but acknowledging that even if I think for myself, I still have to check with other people before I, you know, I, 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 need, I need correction. Uh, I, I need encouragement. I need my blind spots to be uh, acknowledged by other, or, or shown to me by other people. Uh, and that it's this way, this way of humility that we go to God. So, the kingdom is not gained by my own effort. I, I, you know, in, in, at the root, I'm, I'm dependent on God. You know, I, I, can't, I can't make myself exist. And if I go out of existence, I can't re-exist myself. You know, I can't. So, we all depend on God just at that root level, Right? Uh, so it's good to acknowledge that. This is why gratitude is so important. Because gratitude is an acknowledgement that I am dependent. And this is why Aristotle's great soul man doesn't like to say thank you. <laughs> it's opposed to the, the great soul Greek. Uh, the, you know, you think of the statues of the Greek heroes. They, they disdain any traffic with the dependent sorts. We, they, they can bestow largesse on them, but it's a one-way street. They don't have anything to learn <laughs> from, from those poor people who aren't great soul. Okay, number two, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Um, interestingly here, uh, can you name two people in the Bible who are described as meek? Start with one, if you think of one. How about our Lord? Does he, he describes himself as meek, I think, right? Yeah, learn from me. Take my yoke upon you. So interestingly, like, again, submit and, and imitate me, Christ, because I'm meek, okay? Interestingly enough, there's another person who's described as meek in the Bible, but in the Old Testament. It's kind of illuminative, I think, in terms of Christ's own role. Uh, that's a good guess, but it, it isn't, that's not who I'm thinking of. I'm not aware that he's actually described that way, but he is a man after God's own heart, so he probably was. But there's actually someone who the narrator tells us uh, he was meek beyond all others. Uh, this is when... Um, uh, Aaron and uh, Miriam rise up against Moses and say, ah, you're making bad decisions. <laughs> uh, we, we should be able to, to uh, make decisions with you and so on. And uh, God's upset with him. But the narrator says, now, the thing you have to understand about Moses is he was the meekest man. <laughs> you know. so, so again, our Lord, in, in referring to himself as meek, is, is showing himself as a fulfillment of the type of Moses, just as his teaching on the mount is a fulfillment of the type of Moses. So as Moses gave the law on Mount Sinai, Jesus gives the new law on the Mount uh, in Galilee. Okay, so part of this is uh, the lawgiver has to be meek. He's passing on the law from God, not his own opinion, right? Um, what does it mean for us to be meek? Again, I don't think it means for us to be uh, milk toast or, or to get walked upon or something like that. Uh, what the fathers would say is uh, this is, has to do with me not being self-justifying. Uh, so, and it's a help. You remember I said that these early Beatitudes are about renouncing sensual ideas of happiness. So one of the ways we can give into this is we have our own impulses about what will make us happy, like uh, you know, eating cookies or something like this, or watching uh, YouTube videos or whatever. And uh, so I just have this attraction and I do it and I think it'll make me happy. And a meek person looks at his own or her own attractions and impulses and says, huh, I don't really know what's best for me. <laughs> you know, I really need help. Uh, I, I need to question whether my first response to things is correct uh, and wait and listen to God's input on this. Uh, so I don't make my own decisions in this way. What does it mean to own uh, the land, to possess the land? 
Um, whenever we read about the land in the Old Testament, we want to read it spiritually. This means our, our bodily nature, because we're made of clay, right? We're made of the dust of the earth. And so to possess the land means to have control over my own body. And what that means is, is not to be pushed and pulled by emotions all the time. It doesn't mean not to have emotions, but I experience them without them pushing me to do things that I shouldn't do. I'm always reluctant to follow my enthusiasms or my anger uh, and, and instead to kind of put that to one side and choose what I should do based on God's law. And so, for instance, obviously not being angry because that doesn't, you're not meek if you're angry. Um, and, and, and I say this with certain knowledge. I'm a real choleric, as you probably have guessed. So my, I have very quick responses to things emotionally. And uh, sometimes that can be a help because it gives me a lot of energy. But I also have to be careful because it can, it can really wreak havoc on the brother's moods. If I'm, if I'm either if I lose my temper or if I just like zoom along and do things really fast um, because I don't include everybody else. So, so this is something I've had to learn as someone disposed to... Uh, a certain swiftness in, in emotional response. Uh, Augustine tells us that meekness promotes reverence to God. So uh, again, rather than self-assertion, if I go into church, I maintain a certain reverence before God's presence rather than just kind of, you know, announcing myself. <laughs> um, so as a curb to anger, there's a paradox in this, and that is... Um, fortitude, well, the virtue of fortitude, one of its functions is to give us a way to channel anger so that it is a righteous anger and not, um, not just losing our temper. But we take the energy that anger, a right response to injustice has, but we put it into action in ways that are good, that, that require courage. Um, and interestingly enough, meekness is connected to fortitude. So meekness, again, is not about being uh, someone who gets walked over, who runs away from trouble, but is actually able to stand up to injustice, not in anger, uh, not in uh, finger pointing and blaming or fear, but just telling the truth. That is unjust. You know, it's not, it's not me that has to say that. It's not my own opinion. Yeah, no, it's not being pretentious. Not being pretentious, yeah. Yeah, which is not easy because if we know the truth, it's easy to become inflated because we know the truth, right? Um, and it's easy, again, to have an us versus them kind of approach. Like, you're, you're wrong because you've done this. Uh, rather than, again, seeking the other person's salvation by announcing the truth in a way that would invite conversion and repentance. There may be places for, you know, very strong forthright speech. I'm not saying that that's, uh, our Lord is, is full of examples of this and he's meek, okay? But again, he speaks with the truth and with the concern for everybody involved. How about the third uh, beatitude that has to do with renunciation of, of wrong sensual ideas of happiness? Mourning. So let's again, let's say that our Lord himself is the model of blessedness. Um, he, he enjoys constant union with his father, uh, even during his earthly life. And so where does he mourn? What's our model for mourning there? Remember? Any ideas? Yeah. He did, yeah. Yeah, so he, uh, he was... Uh, properly mournful about the phenomenon of death. He didn't like it. Any other places? There's, there's one other famous scene. Um, it's about the same time, oddly enough. But it, it's not in John's Gospel. It appears in Mark's, Mark and Matthew's, I think. Is that Jerusalem? Yes. Mourning over Jerusalem. He mourns over Jerusalem because Jerusalem doesn't recognize the time of her visitation. So here's God coming to Jerusalem to save her. And Jerusalem rejects God, God's son, right? And so our Lord mourns and weeps over this. So mourning is, is weeping for the, the fact that there's still sin in the world and people say no to God, including ourselves. That's where we differ from Christ. We can mourn our own sins. We can mourn our own faithlessness. Lent is coming up. And um, 
one of the, I, this, this book is probably out of print, but one of the books I often have brothers read at Lent, because I have to choose a book for each brother each year, is a book called Penthos. And it's about uh, mourning for our sins. Uh, mourning that in spite of the fact that God has promised us joy and has given us everything we need to achieve it, we say no. You know, we have this weird way of getting in our own way and tripping on our own feet. And so we mourn that so we can acknowledge it and move on, you know, rather than pretending it's somebody else's fault. But we also mourn this in, when we see it in others, again, because we want others to have this happiness too, not just us. Um, and what happens to those who mourn? What does our Lord promise them? Comfort, comfort. yeah. Who's the comforter? The Holy Spirit, yes. So when we mourn, it's the Holy Spirit who's going to come to comfort us, not ourselves. Okay, so again, one of the ways we, I think we can do this and undercut ourselves is by trying to comfort ourselves by seeking out our own, you know how you, when you feel bad, you think like, ah, it'd be a perfect time to have a beer, <laughs> right? And, and again, there's nothing wrong with drinking beer. The problem is uh, trying to get that comfort for myself rather than at some level, waiting on the Holy Spirit to bring that comfort so that it's at a spiritual level and not at a, at a, a sensual level, okay? Uh, so, to acknowledge our failings. All right, let's move on to hunger and thirst for righteousness. I think I'm going to actually get everything in here <laughs> today. Um, now we're moving, as I said, into the Beatitudes that deal with uh, happiness in action. Like, what does it mean to act in a way that comports with my beatitude? So, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Uh, you know, the fathers of the church are so amazing. And the, the church's theological tradition is so amazing because it's built up over all of these persons reading the scriptures, going to liturgy together, talking, writing, teaching acting, repenting, and we all keep working at it together. You get these incredible connections that uh, theologians make between different parts of scripture. So um, uh, uh, our Lord, when he uh, sits down at the well and uh, the apostles come back and they see he's been speaking to the woman at the well in John chapter four, um, he says, you know, I have, uh, I have bread to eat that you don't know about, right? So the fathers of the church look at this and they say, hungering for righteousness, we see our Lord doing it here. That what will satisfy him is his Father's will, right? His Father's will is what sustains him. So hungering for righteousness and thirsting for righteousness is hungering that God's will be done, uh, which we, we seek every time we pray the Our Father. And what this means, practically speaking, is it's not enough to know what's right and just, uh, but we have to do it. We have to, we have to somehow work to bring it about, first of all in ourselves and then in our relationships with others, and then when we can and we're called to in even the bigger structures in our world. And um, uh, what's difficult about this is, is coming up with a motivation. <laughs> Right? The motivation to do the right thing. Uh, we're really good at putting things off that we're, we, ought, we know that we should do. And again, when I say should, I don't mean by way of obligation, but because it'll actually make us feel better. I think with the liturgy, one of the things, almost all the brothers share this with me, when monks travel, we have an obligation. You know, it's, it's in canon law. It's in our customary. We have an obligation to pray the office when we're traveling. Um, but why? Uh, you know, what I find is uh, when, when you don't, when you're used to having uh, everybody show up in church for the offices each day, uh, it's easier to motivate yourself to get there because it's embarrassing if you're late or if you miss it. If you sleep through it or something, then you have to kneel out and everybody's like, yeah, what's up with brother so-and-so? You know, he thinks he can skip the office so the rest of us have to be here. Uh, and so you're motivated to get there. But the thing is, when, once you get to the office, you know, what you realize is, I really need this. Like, this is, this is what makes me happy, is singing God's praises and, and letting God teach me through his word, uh, letting God teach me through the liturgical action and so on. 
And so the, the obligation to pray the office when I'm traveling is really important because it's very easy when I don't have the brothers around to motivate me to get to the office to cheat a little bit, not pray the office, right? Um, so hungering and thirsting for righteousness is learning how to cooperate with grace, to have the motivation to do the things that will make me happy, right? Because oftentimes they're contra- they're, they are paradoxical. Again, we make mistakes very easily about what's going to make us happy. And we choose things that look like they'll make us happy at the moment. But in fact, uh, they, they actually make it harder. You know, this, um, there's a story in the life of St. Ignatius of Loyola, which um, I, I uh, discerned with the Jesuits for a short time before I entered monastic life. And uh, I was quite interested in, in Ignatius' life. And of course, he's known for discernment and, and the discernment that Ignatian spirituality teaches us uh, is mostly about when you have a big decision, how to make the right decision. But it also uh, has aspects that are closer to what we mean by Benedictine discernment, which is learning how to uh, tease out those thoughts and impulses that will actually make me happy and those that will actually lead me to sin or vice. And there's this really amazing story that Ignatius tells us about himself after, shortly after his conversion. He loved to spend long hours in prayer, as often happens when, when these saints have these, these major conversions. And so he would go up on this uh, hilltop. I think he was still near Montserrat at this time, uh, our, our monastery in Spain. Um, and uh, uh, he would just gaze at the sky and pray. And uh, these lights started to appear to him. And he was really intrigued by these lights because they were very beautiful. And he found himself every night when he'd go to pray, looking forward to seeing these lights. And so he'd sit there and wait for the lights to come. And uh, then sometimes they wouldn't come and he'd be kind of disappointed. And then the lights showed up one night and then a voice came from the lights and said, throw yourself off the cliff. And he realized, aha, he'd been tricked. <laughs> this is not the, the voice of God. So, um, so it's very easy uh, to be misled um, and to, to, uh, to lose the motivation we have for choosing the right thing, which is what hungering and thirsting for righteousness is about. Um, another thing the fathers of the church say about this beatitude is it produces in us or it, it helps us to desire to give to others, to share what we have, uh, to empty ourselves, to help others rather than to keep things for ourselves. So, so justice is about the prop, one of the aspects of justice is about the proper distribution of material goods. So we, we make sure that we do our part to share uh, what we can to help others out. All right, how about being merciful? Obviously our Lord is merciful. Uh, I, I mentioned in my homily this morning, I find it so moving that Peter is overcome with you know, this incredible miracle. And, you know, in, in a lot of ways to his credit, he drops to his knees and says, you know, Lord, depart from me. I, 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 I'm not worthy of this. And Jesus makes no acknowledgement of this. You know? He just picks him up and says, no, no, come with me, right? So our, our Lord has this great compassion on those who, who make mistakes. Uh, you think of the, the woman caught in adultery, the incredible compassion he shows. Um, uh, you know, uh, you know, where'd all your accusers go? Are anybody left? Um, no. All right. You know, you can go. Um, our Lord is much more merciful towards sinners uh, than we tend to be. And again, including to ourselves. We tend not to be very merciful to ourselves and say like, ah, I don't do that better. Uh, I was just talking to one brother yesterday and I, I had to keep reminding him, you know, try not to should yourself. You know, oh, I should have done this. I need to do this. I should have done that. Um, Again, what we want to look at is our Lord is inviting us to this. Uh, yes, it's true. I, I choose to do things other than what I should do. Uh, but then I can be merciful on myself and say like, yeah, that's a mistake. Put it aside. Um, the desert fathers like to say things like this. You know, when, when you sin, when you fall, get right up and get going. Don't, don't dwell on it. Don't dwell on it. If you need to, get to confession, confess it. Uh, and then when you're absolved, don't dwell on it. You know, get up and keep going. Keep going. Keep pursuing your goal. Uh, uh, St. Teresa of Avila, 
We'll make much more progress by thinking about God's greatness than about our wretchedness. <laughs> now, don't get caught up in all that. Focus on God's greatness. Then you'll be merciful to other people, and you'll see that, uh, you know, we're all in this, we're, we're companions in shipwreck, as, as J.R.R. Tolkien said. Uh, he said this to counter the, the kind of um, cult of romanticism about women that was part of the late 19th century, early 20th century. He was warning one of his sons, you know, uh, remember, women are sinners too. You know, we're, we're, we're companions in shipwreck. It's, we have to support one another. We can't, in other words, you, you can't just depend on somebody else to do the good for you. You need to support one another and acknowledge that uh, our fallen state affects us all. Uh, we have in our Catholic tradition the corporal and spiritual works of mercy. So again, this is an active virtue. It, it moves us to, to, to bury the dead, to console the sorrowing, uh, to teach the ignorant, all those things. Um, this is all about being merciful to others. And you see, by the way, now how pursuing happiness for myself automatically involves me in the welfare of others. I can't, I can't be blessed, our Lord is saying. We can't be blessed or happy without worrying, you know, not worrying, but concerning ourselves with the fate of others. Okay, but it has to be structured in the way that he's teaching us. Uh, last thing about mercy, uh, uh, this communal aspect. Uh, when our Lord uh, is telling the story about the, uh, the Good Samaritan, uh, he asks the Pharisees, which one was neighbor to the man? And the answer is the one, yeah, go ahead, Johnny. The one who showed him mercy, right? Yeah. So, so love your neighbor, the, the second great commandment, is all about showing mercy. To be a neighbor to someone is to show mercy to him or her. All right, we've made it to the contemplative, to contemplative beatitude, purity of heart. This concept is very dear to monks and nuns. It is, uh, I would say, very closely connected to two technical Greek terms, which are good to know. One is called apatheia. And this is what I talked about earlier, uh, that we have the passions, we have pathos, uh, which is the Greek word we're, we're using here, but we're not controlled by it. So we're apathos. Uh, we are, we're not apathetic. It's not like we don't care, but we're not pushed and pulled by our emotions. They exist. They may be good. They may not be good. But we choose what God wishes. We're, we're no longer, we're no longer uh, afraid or angry or sad. Uh, but we simply are. We simply are disciples. We're simply children of God in that way. Those who are pure of heart who achieve this will see God. And we'll start to understand what God is like because we're going to be like him. We know God doesn't have emotions, right? The emotions are a product of being in a body, okay? So when we talk about God's uh, being pleased or, or, or angry, we're using a metaphor because God doesn't change. Emotions, as the root motions indicates, are about changes in our bodily experience. So you know when you're angry, you feel it. I always point to here, this is where I feel anger. <laughs> right? If you're sad, sometimes you'll feel it in your throat. Um, if, you're, if you're bored or, or frustrated, you might feel it here. Right? You can see people like this. <laughs> so these are states of the body. And they, they aren't necessarily bad on their own. They're only bad when they choose us to, to make, they, they, they move us to choose things that we shouldn't choose. So purity of heart is about a heart that's attuned to what God would have us do. And then we, we, we learn, we actually can, can have some control over our emotions. We can feel the right thing at the right time. We can rejoice with those who are rejoicing and weep with those who weep. Another great thing about the office, you know, constantly get these Psalms and say like, yeah, I'm really, I'm really happy today. Or, you know, I'm in Sheol today. And we may or may not actually feel that way, but we have to make some effort to have sympathy with the Psalmist and this teaches us to moderate our emotions and to adjust them to what is correct in the circumstances, right? Um, the other word I wanted to use is uh, hezekiah. So this is silence and stillness. So purity of heart, is. this is a word that's used much more in the Christian East. 
And we even, you can read about the hesychists. They are uh, monks or others who practice this stillness. And again, it's the opposite of emotion, right? So it doesn't mean I don't feel emotion, but I force myself not to move, not to say anything. <laughs> and uh, eventually uh, the feeling will, will dissipate in some way and I'll learn to control it and moderate it in, in proper measure. Uh, one of the... Um, there's a, probably an apocryphal story about uh, the great former president of the University of Chicago, Robert Maynard Hutchins. You may know this, but the University of Chicago used to be a Big Ten school. And in fact, the first Heisman Trophy winner came from the University of Chicago. His name was Jay Berwanger, and I, I met him at an alumni function once. Uh, Hutchins didn't like sports. So he canceled the football program. There was no football program for a couple decades. And uh, the, the story I wanted to tell you is that uh, supposedly um, he said, uh, whenever I get the urge to exercise, I lie down until it goes away. <laughs> <laughs> and I remembered this when I was first in my first sort of conversion, when I was uh, starting to go back to church. Uh, De dealing with anger, dealing with lust, dealing with all of these very powerful emotions, I learned that you could just lie down and eventually they'd go away. <laughs> and uh, uh, I, I, don't, I don't lie down anymore, but I, I still practice this. You know, when, when you have a, a very unsettling emotion, one of the things you can just do is just be quiet and, 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 and sit in place and, and eventually, you know, you can't be angry forever. You'll just, you'll lose... You, uh, you lose energy, right? Um, but oftentimes, again, we feel like we need to do something. And, and uh, that actually can make the situation worse. Um, so purity of heart is about letting go of these, these things that taint our heart's desires and, and, and adulterate them in some way to, to go the wrong direction. Um, we begin to see God then because we start, instead of understanding things through this lens of our own emotional goggles, we start to see things as they really are. And uh, we start to understand with the, the movements, movements of the Holy Spirit. And uh, this means we can understand, for instance, Scripture according to the Holy Spirit. We can read the signs of the times. Uh, we can understand what the liturgy is showing us through the Holy Spirit. We can read the book of nature, how things, I, I alluded to this, you know, there's a way to fish and there's a way not to fish. And God has set it up this way and we can see God's logos, we can see Christ informing these things in our life. You know, there are disciplines in accounting, there are disciplines in mathematics, in engineering, in uh, poetry, in history, like all these things can speak of God as long as we're not personally, emotionally invested in them to, in the wrong way. Okay, so we have this purity of heart. We begin to see God in all things. Finally, blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called children of God. John tells us, to those who accepted the word of life when he came into the world, uh, they became children of God. Uh, why is that? Because Christ is our peace, uh, St. Paul says. Christ is our peace who has made both the Jews and Gentiles one. He's broken down the dividing wall that separates uh, person from person. Uh, so this peace, when we, when we learn how to make peace with ourselves and with others, uh, it is Christ who is our peace who's doing this in us. And we are, uh, it's no longer us that's living, but it's Christ in us. Right? So we are really children of God and we experience this union with God. Peace is the tranquility of order. That's Augustine's uh, definition. And I like to quote it because uh, since the 1960s or so, <laughs> with the peace movement, uh, peace can often be just, again, sort of me feeling disconnected and, and uh, pleasant, uh, you know, um, Actually, peace is a discipline, you know. It's, it's, a, it's a discipline ordering of things according to the right measure, the right relationships. Um, and uh, oftentimes when we're not at peace, it's because we're railing against the way God has ordered things. We want a different order than what God has given us. Um, and uh, 
So it's not about a sensual feeling, but it's an awareness that the order that God has intended from the beginning, because you know, uh, before God creates anything, the Spirit's moving over the waters and the, the Hebrew phrase is tohu vabohu, which is sort of, you know, waste and empty, chaotic, disorder. Right? All the waters are moving around and there's no order to it. And when God speaks, things start to separate into their correct categories. And we see how they relate to each other in proper measure. So the light goes here, the dark goes there, the waters go there, the land goes there, the firmament goes there, the stars go there. And then God looks and says, yeah, that's good. <laughs> that order is good. Uh, when things start to fall apart and go, go disorder, that's when uh, this is the effect of sin. And so to put things back into place is to counteract our fallenness and to, to recognize and realize, to make real, the order that God intended from the beginning. Uh, so, last of all, I'm going to say uh, 30 seconds about being persecuted. To know that we're, we're getting there, we need to be put to the test. We have to go undergo trials in order to see whether we're actually seeking the right things and doing the right things. So these persecutions are, are both the fulfillment, we're, we'll, we'll know that we're actually children of God if we suffer persecution to some extent, but also it'll give us a chance to see whether we're, you know, we've made real progress in the virtues because it's tempting to fall away from the right action when we're threatened with, uh, with suffering of some kind. And uh, uh, so that is why there are eight Beatitudes, but most of the fathers talk as if there are seven because the eighth occupies a, a different kind of level. Uh, Okay, so uh, we have a few minutes if there are any questions. Um, I hope this is helpful. I, I was pretty excited to give this talk today on the Beatitudes uh, because I'd like it if we were all blessed and joyful. Uh, you know, too, too many Christians right now, at least on social media, are all up in arms <laughs> and constantly finding fault with everything, you know. And uh, it just won't, this won't, doesn't speak of God and it won't win us converts, you know. In my opinion. Again, that doesn't mean we, we, we shouldn't speak the truth about injustice and so on, but uh, it has to come from a sense of, of God's love and God's intentions for us, which are that I'll be saved. All right, so I said I was going to take questions. Yeah, Charles. Is, is meekness synonymous with our modern sense of humility? I, I, I would say if you look at St. Benedict's teaching on humility in chapter 7 of the rule, it, it maps pretty well on there. And you see again at the top of the ladder of humility, the monk is full of joy. Right, so uh, but he also sees himself at the judgment at every moment. So there's this weird paradox, just like the Beatitudes themselves. You know, we're sort of happy when we're mourning, <laughs> right? Or we're blessed, I guess is probably the better word. Uh, yes. One thing that struck me about with uh, peacemaking, peacemaking, uh, peace uh -huh. being a literary sort of just really it's a Benedictine. Remember God in this house of greed. Yeah. The opening paragraph. The motto was Pax. But the word was said in a circle of throne, uh, thorns. Pax, peace, but what a strange peace. Made of unremitting toil and effort, seldom with a seen result. Subject to sudden, constant interruptions, unexpected demands, short sleep at nights, little comfort, sometimes scant food, beset with disappointments and usually misunderstood, yet peace all the same, undying, filled with joy and gratitude and love. It is my own peace I give unto you, not notice the world's peace. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> Y'all, have you heard of this book, In This House of Breed, by uh, Rumor Godden? Uh, it's a wonderful book. It's about a, a sister's community in England and a late vocation for mentors. Yeah, thank you. Yes? Practical question. Uh, How does one begin to live fully in the Beatitudes? Mm -hmm. um, while living out there. Yeah, that's the million dollar question. Without coming off as being smug. Mm -hmm. Like you can get away with it. You wear a habit <laughs> and you wear a pectoral cross. We come yeah. off like, what does yeah. he think he is? Yeah, yeah. yeah this is this begin that process? Well, I'll tell you what. To some extent, you know, I'm, I'm giving these talks and talking about the Benedict Option because I want to have a discussion with you about that. Uh, because... I'm afraid what I, would, what I might say, since it's uninformed, I'm not out there with you, uh, might fall short of the goal. So I, I'm going to wait to answer that question. I wanna, I wanna put it in the hopper 
because uh, I, I, think, I think I'd like to, to discuss this with all of you uh, and, and for all of us to discuss it together uh, because it is a big question, but it's, it's of essential importance right now, I think, because uh, many people labor under lots of misconceptions about what the gospel is. And, um, and oftentimes, as I say, we Christians are our own worst enemies, so when we try to spread the gospel, we come off as kind of scolds and, and uh, you know, uh, and, and we, we play into the worst stereotypes of our enemies. <laughs> so, uh, and I, I hope that doesn't sound like a cop-out, but no, uh, um, I think this is a, the question that we want to talk about together. We can be a resource for you, but you can be a resource for us, because... It, 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 yeah, in many ways, it's very different for us because we, we don't encounter those things, you know, or, or I haven't in a long time. And to my great surprise, when I walk around in my habit, uh, most people are actually nice to me. I, I, I keep waiting for, you know, more sort of persecution or like, every so often I get the person who, you know, makes some snide remark about pedophiles, you know, but uh, that, that's actually unusual. And more often I get, hey, Father, will you give me a blessing? <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. So, uh, yeah, I'd like to have this discussion. Mm -hmm. I forget the document, but mm -hmm. um, the, sort of the mission of the laity is, is one of the documents mm -hmm. in the back yep. of yep. course. And looked at it, and it's, it's a little difficult, you know, mm -hmm. what we're called to do. Mm -hmm. I'll have to look at that. And yeah. I guess two things. One, we're called to bring our, our life, our everyday life, and <coughs> offer it to God and make it part of mm -hmm. the Holy Life. Mm -hmm. you know, and, mm -hmm. and also, we have a mission because we are in the world. Mm -hmm. This seems that priests can't do. I mean, yeah. As a matter of fact, when we try to advance, it's a total failure. Yeah, yeah, and, and this I see is something that there, where there's a lot of potential with you oblates. Because you can bring your concerns to us and we can help you pray. But then we can also send you back out with, with some... Uh, what's that? It's not easy. I know. I'm sure it isn't. I'm sure it isn't. Um, and uh, yeah, I'd, I'd like for us to be a resource for you. You know, to have to keep, to keep this discussion going. Now, in all fairness, I, I have to say, you know, for me to do my job, I have to head upstairs now. Um, but I want, like I said, I, I'd like to continue this particular part of the discussion. I'm glad it came up. So thank you, Alex. I really appreciate it. Good. Uh, our help is in the name of the Lord. We made heaven and earth. Amen.